For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 707 on CJAD. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. And Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Michael Newton, who's in for Josh Miller. Welcome back, Michael. Hi, Dan. Thanks. Have- uh, so how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thank you. Other than the slushy, uh, wet feet that we got walking in, other than that, we're doing pretty well. It is quite messy out there. And uh, why don't we begin by introducing our guest this evening, David Reach. Um, I guess it's, it's going to be tough to define uh, the work that Mr. Reach has done over the years. David has quite a storied past. Uh, he's a young 83 years old. Uh, I've known David for over 20 years. And he's uh, going to give us a little bit of a walk through uh, some of his education as well as the, the very large family business that he chose not to get involved in and start his own architectural work. Uh, he did some teaching along the way and he's got a few other stories for us. So uh, the hard part will be trying to keep him within an hour. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so should we start at the beginning then? Might as well. David, welcome. Thank you. So tell us about first year. Your, uh, are you a native Montrealer? Born and bred. And what is your educational background? Uh, what did you have your heart set on doing uh, when you were young? How young? <laughs> uh, let's try teenager. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, I, I really didn't uh, make up my mind of what I wanted to be until I was about 13 or 14 years old. A fellow sitting next uh, to me tell, asked me, what are you going to be? I said, well, I've thought of everything, and I've discarded them all, so I have to be something. What are you going to be? He says, I'm going to be an architect. And that had never occurred to me. He told me what it did, and uh, it covered all the things that I'd love to do. I love to build, I love to draw. And he says, All you got to do is go and make drawings and watch the buildings go up. I said, That's for me. And I went home and told my father, Pa, I'm going to be an architect. And how did that go over, David, given the fact that the, the large family business, which employed multiple, uh, uh, multiple families? Uh... Oh, there were about 13 families in the family business. Anybody who breathed and walked past was sucked right into it. My brothers, my, my brother, uh, my cousins, my uncles, my aunts, uh, everybody. And if you married into it, you got stuck there too. And there was nothing wrong with the business. It was a good business, and they're nice people to work with because I knew them. I was related to them by marriage. And uh, they, uh, they would have welcomed me into the business. But I told my father, I, you know, he always knew. I, I told him I never wanted to be in the business for no good reason. There's no special reason why I didn't. Not that they were nasty or anything. Uh, but I said, I, I want to be an architect. He says, what does an architect do? I told him. And he said, well, how do you make a living? I said, well, you open an office and you put your name on the door and you sit down and you wait for clients to come and see you. He says, you wait for clients to come? I said, yes. He says, that's not a business. But I went into it. And I never regretted it. And that was, well, that was back around 1942 or three or something. It was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, were you ever tempted, as you hit some tough periods, maybe along the way, to, to join the family business? Because the no, family business never. was in existence never. until, what, early 90s? Yeah, about that. Yeah, no, never, never. I never was attracted to anything else. I always loved what I did and uh, didn't want to do anything else. So you were telling me earlier that uh, when you first started to build, you were building, uh, you were designing houses. Well, we all came out of school designing houses. There wasn't too much else to do. Sometimes we did kitchen alterations. Sometimes we did basement renovations. And, of course, then we had small jobs besides that. So, uh, basically, it was uh, clearly some big money to be made back oh, then. Oh, back then, yeah. We were designing houses, and I was one of the top earners in houses. I was getting $10 to design a house. And uh, 
those days ten dollars would buy you a few things, but uh, not very much. You moved on from uh, building houses to building uh, some some larger buildings. Maybe uh, give us a bit. Uh... Well, we you know we like all architects, we started out uh, small, and um, there was a big backlog of unbuilt buildings in Canada at the time. The war had just finished. There was uh, no housing had been built for six or seven years. Um, there was a big need for it. People were coming over. Uh, there were uh, there was a lot of speculation in terms of buying land and building these things, and we were right in the middle of it. Of course, we weren't getting paid very much, uh, but it was uh, it was very alive. And then we moved up a little bit. We did you know, a small warehouse or two, uh, what would pass as a shopping center, which today would be laughable. You know, three or four stores leaning against each other on a lot. And um, until I had a a break, a lucky break. And I seized the break, the opportunity, and I got involved in industrial construction. And that proved to be the what I spent most of the rest of my life doing. Who are some of the bigger uh, bigger companies you've designed for? Well, we worked for and still work for SNC, now SNC-Lavalin. We did that. We're still doing their work, and this is 60 years later, or 55 years later. Uh, well, we worked for every big one, Shawinigan and Montreal Engineering and... We, we worked for almost every... No other architects were interested in industrial buildings. There was no glory. There was no winning contests, no winning competitions. Uh, you didn't get written up, but nobody cared what a smelter looked like uh, or a mining operation. We did we did all, all those things. Has most of your design work been in Canada, or have you done any designing outside oh, we the have country? Done, we have worked right around the world with that because uh, the a lot of the engineering was done here, and the engineers would need an architect to design something in Malaysia or in uh, South America or uh, uh, anywhere else in the world. We worked in, in many countries. We did uh, the International Airport at the time in Abu Dhabi. We did uh, dams in Malaysia. Uh, we worked a lot in the Arctic here, by the way. We did the town of Shasasabi, which is now the capital of the uh, of the Cree Indians. Uh, we, we did work for the Inuit all over the place. We did their schools. I understand you did some work in Nigeria as oh, well. Oh, we did work for Nigeria. Oh, that was that was something. We designed the parliament buildings for the Midwestern state of Nigeria. That was very interesting because Canada had given um, a two a two billion dollar gift to the government of Nigeria. Of course, there was a few conditions attached to it. The main condition was that the money has to be spent in Canada. So they sent over a representative from Nigeria to come here and to choose whatever projects in Canada they could replicate there. And the fellow showed up, and they took him for a tour in Quebec. They wanted most of the money to be spent in Quebec. And he passed by a chicken plant where 20,000 chickens every morning marched in, and they came out on cardboard platters covered with plastic. And he says, I'll have one of those. Well, if you've ever seen a Nigerian chicken, he's running for his life without feathers. So if that's what he wanted, that was okay. So we didn't do that. Then he, um, they said, he, they passed by the legislature building in Quebec. And the man says, what's that? He says, that's our parliament building. He says, I'll, I want one of those. They said, okay. So uh, they hired me to, to do it. And I went to the authorities of the Nigerian government, and I said, we're going to do your parliament building. Uh, tell me, what should I put in it? He says, well, we don't have a parliament. I said, well, how do I plan it? He says, make it up. So I designed the whole building out of my head, chamber of chiefs, chamber of, com of, of commoners, and we made the model, and I went to Nigeria, and we spent several months there. Of course, nothing ever got built, 
because the materials weren't available. They don't quarry stone. They don't have copper. They didn't have metals. They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the skills. And uh, what they built mostly there, this was in Benin where I spent my time, was, was mud. That is, you would uh, dig into the ground, you'd take out the mud from the ground, which was very cohesive, you'd put it together, and uh, the deeper you went, the higher the building was built. And I said, well, this is, this is really great. We'll build a parliament building out of mud. So I said, it's, it's fine. If you ever want to dissolve parliament, you just take a hose. <laughs> Our guest on today's Entrepreneur this evening is David Reach. We have to take a very quick break, and uh, we'll get back to more stories uh, from Mr. Reach in just a second. It's 7.15. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.18 on today's Entrepreneur, uh, Dan Delmar along with uh, Michael Newton of Fuller Landau who's filling in for Josh Miller this week and our guest this evening is David Rich. Thanks, Dan. Um, David, we're going to take a little bit of a twist here, uh, go from the architect uh, world to a little bit of world of education. Um, at one point, you decided if you're going to stay in Quebec that you needed to, to learn to speak French. So, uh, and, and like everything else you've done, you decided to do it maybe a little bit different from everybody else. Well, it became apparent after a few years of practice here in Quebec that um, we, were, we were hiding from what was really the reality. So I said, we're going to have to do all our work in French because, first of all, the construction industry was mostly French and Italian and so on, which operated in French. So uh, I said, well, I'm going to learn French. And the best way to learn it is to teach. So I got myself a job with the Institut de Technologie de Montréal as a teacher in, in architecture. And I'd learn as many words as I needed for the next day's lectures. And it was fine because we got along well with the students. And I would uh, learn things like, on peut parler aujourd'hui des panneaux de gyps préfabriqués. And I'd show them what it was. He says, oh, c'est le gyp rock. Oh, le gyp rock, for sure. And, and this is the way we got through. After a year, so I was getting along fine. I got my, my brevet d'instruction. I have a French teaching certificate. And I taught there for, I don't know, three or four years. And then the whole institute became the first Seychep de Vieux Montréal. That was the first Seychep. And uh, so I taught there. And they wanted me to stay on because I was the only architect that they had. And I didn't want to become a pedagogue. I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't want to be an administrator. God forbid in any of these institutions. Uh, so um, then they opened Dawson College, which was the first English SEGEP, so I switched over to Dawson, and I was teaching civil technology because they didn't have architectural technology, and I was always saying, come on, architectural technology is very important. Architects are not strong on technology. We should be training people to do it for them. So uh, finally, uh, they said, well, we cannot, we cannot offer the course because uh, there's no students, and we don't have students because we don't have a course to offer. That made sense to them. And eventually we had enough people who were turned out from other courses who took architecture, and we opened up the architectural school at Vanier College. That was a brand-new building that was built for them, Vanier right near uh, Queen Mary. And I taught there for, well, I think I left in 85, so it was close to 20 years. And uh, that was wonderful. I, I loved that. I loved the students. We had a great time. These were technological students. They weren't going to become, most of them didn't have the intention of becoming uh, professionals. And this was a three-year program, and we could place all these people. They became administrators, estimators, job supervisors. But uh, they, they were prohibited from going to many, many other universities because they didn't have the requisite calculus and things like that. So McGill, for example, would not take a graduate 
from the technological school to go into architecture. And I went down to Miguel. I said, why don't you take these people? They know so much about uh, construction. Oh, you know, they don't need that. I said, your architects don't have this information. They, they never learned business. They never learned estimating. They never learned building codes. They said they're going to learn on the job. I said, who's going to pay for that? And well, it's going to, either going to be the client or, or the architect who's going to end up paying for it. They said no. Some of ours uh, as, uh, graduates did go into U of M, and as a matter of fact, I'm still working for them. And I used to hire the best students for our office, as a matter of fact. And some of them, are, one of them is still working there. And this is going back a long, long time. David, if you, obviously, while you're teaching and you're, for lack of a better term, architecting, um, you had to be running a business at the same time. Oh, yeah, we ran the business at the same and time. And I'm sure there are some ups and downs and, uh, and, and issues while you're trying to balance your time and, yeah. and continue to, to promote and bring in, uh, bring in new jobs. Architecture is, is very upsy-downsy. It's a wonderful profession. It's a terrible business because there's very little continuity in architecture. You do a job for somebody, and the job is finished. You've got to find somebody else to do it. There's not too many that have a continuum. I, I, this is why I prefer to work with engineers, because engineers uh, had a, a greater record of continuity, and especially companies like SNC, uh, Schoenigan, people, bigger people that we worked for. And uh, it, all this industrial work was going on. Smelters were being built. Concentrators were being built metal forming plants of every sort, chemical plants. Uh, there's a huge industrial background, refineries and so on. When uh, We're going to have to break in a second, but when we come back, uh, I'd like to maybe touch a little bit on, for anybody that's looking to go out uh, and, and start their own business or run their own business, the type of uh, promoting or the type of uh, hobnobbing that you have to do in order to try and get some of the jobs that, uh, that you've gotten over the years. Hmm. Today's Entrepreneur with guest host Michael Newton and our guest David Reach returns in a moment, 723 on CJD. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to today's Entrepreneur, Dan Delmar, along with guest co-host Michael Newton of Fuller Landau, sitting in for Josh Miller. And our guest this evening is David Reach, and we're talking about uh, Mr. Reach's career in architecture. And uh, I have to ask, it seems like Quebec, there's been different phases of architecture. There was a lot of heavy concrete, uh, perhaps in the 60s. Now now it's, it seems like more buildings are going up in glass. Um, you've seen a lot of the evolution. Uh, do, you, do you think there's, um, is there one era in architecture that you like the best or and do you like where architecture is going uh, do i like where it's going now no because it's computer driven and anything that you can design on a computer they ask you to build which costs a lot more money and uh, i'm not going to discuss aesthetics because this is a very subjective matter some people listen. everybody knows about beauty especially people who handle building permits they tell you it doesn't suit it's not sensitive enough it's not doesn't <laughs> fit this environment blah 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 makes no difference uh, some somebody there is saying I don't like it, so we have to stay stay away from that. It's no use. What one person likes, another person doesn't. Uh, but in terms of uh, the effect of technology on the aesthetics of architecture, certainly all the time happens. I can give you just little examples. We could walk through Montreal, or in fact any city, and you could tell just by looking at the shape of the building when they were built. For example. Uh, in Montreal, before the war, most windows were made of wood, and these were double-hung windows that slid up and down. So consequently, the proportion was more uh, high and narrow. Uh, then, after the, uh, the war, aluminum became a, um, a material, and aluminum windows could slide horizontally. So the proportion changed to horizontal. They were long and, and uh, less high. 
um, all these all these things had had impacts on the um, on the aesthetic. Uh, for instance, when we started the housing uh, in the housing field back in the early fifties, and we would go and Cote Saint Luke was all farmland, and most of Saint Laurent was farmland. So we went out, and the only thing we had to worry about when we went to visit the site was whether they locked up the bull or not. <laughs> but what uh, what happened? We found out very quickly, for example that they didn't have sewers, didn't have storm sewers. Now, storm sewers take away the drainage water from roofs and driveways and so on. So they said, well, you cannot slope your driveway down to a garage. Consequently, you can't put the garage in the basement. So what are we going to do? Put the garage above ground. We put the garage above ground. That means you can have it. All, all the rooms are going to be in the second story. I said, well, we can't have that. What we'll do is we're going to drop the living room and the kitchen halfway down. And we'll call it a split level. Oh, split level. So this became a fashion. Why? Because they didn't have sewers. Wow. Now, uh, then everybody says, well, I, you got a split level, i got to have a split level. So it made no, <laughs> made no difference. So this is talk about aesthetic. You know, this is the way things was. Town of Hampstead, they had a rule at the time that every roof had to be at, at an angle of 30 degrees. Why? No reason for it. Uh, so all of these things were legislated either from some esoteric reason which nobody could quite uh, think but and this became accepted as an aesthetic because aesthetics is a very subjective thing and uh, when people would, would design houses um, or a person would come and say I want a house they say fine you know what do you want it to look like they say I'd say well what do we got here I, you could show them a catalog so this is the Queen Anne period do you, you like the Queen Anne period no I don't like the Queen Anne period well what about the uh, the Victorian period. No, I don't like the. What about the Tudor period? No, I don't like that period. What period would you like? Say, well, I'd like when my guests would come, they would drop dead. Period. That's what's <laughs> Our guest is arch architect uh, David Reach, and uh, we'll continue on in a moment on today's Entrepreneur at 7:30 on CJD. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.34 on CJAD. Welcome back to today's Entrepreneur. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar, along with uh, Michael Newton of Foylanda, who's filling in for Josh Miller this week. And our guest this evening is architect David Reach. Thanks, Dan. Um, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to a little bit later on, get into some of David's uh, writing, uh, writing work that he's done. He's written a published book, and uh, many of you may have seen, uh, he has a regular contributor to the op-ed pages of the Gazette. But I'd like to uh, maybe take a little bit of a business angle, David. And, and obviously, being an architect, there's a significant amount of risk involved, uh, insurance, um, and a number of things that may come back uh, to haunt you, I guess, somewhere down the road. How do you how do you deal with those? How do you prevent those? And and how do you try to mitigate some of the risks associated with it? Well, mitigate is the right word because you can't prevent them. You're responsible for everything you do. You're responsible for everything your employees do that you're paying. You're responsible for the engineers that you hire. You're responsible for the materials that come on the job because the architect knew or should have known, as the lawyers say. Consequently, we're exposed to tremendous risk. And there's no prescription for a period for it. They can sue you five years later. They can uh, come back 20 years later and sue you, and they do. And in some cases, they can even come back and sue the estate. They can sue the estate as well, exactly. So the protection is, is very little. And actually, you carry insurance, but no insurance is enough. You just can't carry it a sufficient amount. I was dealing with an estate a number of years ago where uh, that situation arose where uh, after the individual had passed away, uh, the estate was being liquidated. 
the uh, the uh, beneficiaries uh, obviously accepted the estate, but as, as opposed, uh, while they were accepting the estate, they also had to accept the risk that was associated with it and had to maintain an ongoing insurance policy despite the fact that their father had passed away a number mm -hmm. of years before in order to protect themselves. And obviously this is something that uh, I guess to a certain degree, I guess that risk is, is like it is in any profession. It's an attempt to try and self-police and, and avoid any kind of negligence. Yes, but other provinces, for instance, have a prescription period. They say after so many years you can't sue the architect or whatever the story is. But uh, in Quebec, you have no protection. So if you were if you were starting a, an architectural firm today and you wanted to try and hit the pavement and like you like you were used to tell your father I'm just going to sit back and and wait for everybody to show up. The reality is nobody's going to show up. You have to get out there. You have to pound the pavement. Where do you begin? Well, that's very interesting. You begin with what uh, what you know and who you know. And then you network. And we found networking is, is the best thing. Uh, advertising really doesn't work. What we, and uh, I had the occasion, I used to quiz clients afterwards, why did you choose me? And there was one common thread. They said, because we felt we could trust you. I don't mean financially, but that we had the confidence that you could do the job. So you've got to project that confidence. And that how, com how do you instill that? How do you instill that level of confidence? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be technologically up there, you have to be financially up there, and you have to know what the problems are of the person who's hiring you. And this is the way you, you, he has to identify with you and you identify with him. When, when you get into the construction side of it, obviously there's construction bonds that are put in place. Is there such a thing from, from the architectural side? Uh, from what point of view? Well, basically, you're putting up uh, you're putting up some uh, some cash or some kind of bond to to secure the uh, the building to secure the job that that you're working on. No, we don't. Uh, the The jobs are secured by bonds, which are put out by bonding companies. There are essentially three kinds of bonds. There's the bo bid bond, that is, that the bidder will actually sign the contract and start the work. Uh, that's one bond. Then there's the performance bond, that he will do the work according to the contract, and if not, the bonding company will come in for the amount of the bond and complete it. And then there's the labor and materials payment bond because as you realize, um, the anybody who works on a job has the right to claim uh, his money from the building. In other words, if a, if a worker is not paid, he can put a lien on the building and have that building seized and sold uh, in order to pay him. So when you, were, when you were putting your projects together and you were designing, who was ultimately paying you? Who well, we always wanted to be paid by the owner of the building and because we had the same lien right as any other worker. What was, it, what, was the, what was the payment format like? Was it deposit up front? Was it interim payments? <laughs> deposit Did you up get front. paid at all? <laughs> deposit up front. Yes, dream on. Uh, no, we were lucky to be, <laughs> to be paid, period. <laughs> no, we, we, um, we tried to, to cover our tracks because we were making an investment and... Um, we would, we would work depending, it might have been a percentage, it might have been an hourly rate, depending on the nature of the job. Some jobs we couldn't possibly uh, know what the fee would be because of the nature of the job. So uh, we would have to estimate it based on the number of drawings which we knew we would require. We knew pretty well what it would cost to prepare a plot plan, a roof plan, a section, elevation, details, and so on. Uh, so we could put together an estimate. Now, when we're doing major industrial jobs, and I'm talking about, well, the last job which I finished was the uh, aluminum smelter up in Lac Saint-Jean, which was a kilometer long and a half a kilometer wide and cost $3 billion. Now, if somebody would ask me, what's my fee? Well, there's no way I could tell them what the fee was. I could tell them an estimate, and i tell them our hourly rates. And they knew that we've done four or five smelters before, so they had confidence in us. And they would pay us, let's say, on a monthly basis, 
uh, based on the hours that we put into it. Okay. Thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about your writing. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a complete shift here. Uh, <laughs> I remember back in November, uh, or October actually, I got an invite from you a couple of times that you were having your uh, book published. Yes. Uh, you decided that uh, obviously teaching and uh, architecture was not a significant uh, challenge in life that you would now have to try, you would have to try and, and, uh, and work to print. No, I well, it's true. The the book was uh, I, I had it published, but that was my tenth book. But it wasn't the tenth book I had published because I self-published the other nine. Uh, this happened to catch the eye of a of a publishing company, and they they wanted it in French. They took it, they translated it, and now it's been published in French. And then an English publisher saw it just about the same time, and he published it in English. So the both books are out in in those two versions. Um, so that's, in effect, my story. The other books which I wrote, I self-published, and I used to take them around to stores. Double Hook sold several hundred of them, uh, but Double Hook, unfortunately, went out of business. And I started writing. Uh, believe me, it's not a money-making proposition, but I, I love to write. It's, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. What did you write about? Well, I started writing, well, I've always written, uh, always since, since I know, and when I was going to school and so on, I used to write... Uh, spoofs, entertainments for, uh, I used to write skits, um, and um, I would tell the kids stories as my kids grew up, so uh, the kid wouldn't eat, I'd tell him a story, he opened his mouth, I'd shove a spoon into it, and when we ran out of food, that was the end of the story. Is when that because he, he was snoring and he was, his mouth was wide no, open? No, 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 he was entranced. Oh. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't stay, couldn't go to sleep on that. Had to know what was going to happen next. So did I. I don't know what was going to happen next. When you were writing, did you go to school? Did you take some courses? I mean, oh, I took courses all the time. I went. I took courses at Concordia. I took. I, I spent uh, years in uh, Thomas More Institute until they finally refused to give me any courses. They wanted somebody else in the class. <laughs> and I go to even now to Humber College for summer seminars. And yeah, I, I, and I belong to different writing groups. Yeah, writing is is a wonderful thing because. Nobody tells you what to write. In architecture, they tell you what to do. See, the, the, uh, the client tells you what to do. Everybody tells you what to do. But uh, in writing, you're free. So basically, there's no building codes. There's uh, nobody standing over your shoulder. Right. It's uh, pretty much what you want, exactly. when you want, how you want it. Exactly. You can write anything. And not, not nine books that were self-published, does that mean basically photocopied and, and schlepped around town on your own, I guess? Is that well, it? Uh, they were printed by my printer, yes. yes. They, they were schlepped around town. Actually, that's good exercise. <laughs> was uh, was architecture your job and, and writing your passion, or did you have two passions? Well, um, writing didn't take over the passion to the extent that it did after I retired, because after I retired, there were a number, you know, I had so many other things to do. Uh, I also um, I do portrait drawing, for instance, and things like that. But that's, that's, those are hobby things, because I enjoy doing it. No, the, the writing took over uh, because I enjoy doing it so much. It went, there, there's nothing more thrilling than sitting down and, uh, and, and doing a story which satisfies you and satisfies other people. Uh, architecture was equally satisfying, but it's just so much more controlled. You see, you're too many other people to please, to please which you could not possibly please, so you're always making compromises. And making compromises is not fun. But writing is fun. You didn't have to compromise. You could, you could write anything. And clearly that wasn't sufficient for you because now at, uh, at 83 years old you've decided to design and uh, manufacture a new product. Yeah, I know, but that was also fun. <laughs> I'm, uh, I walk very badly. Not because I choose to, but uh, I do my best. 
And I have railings all around the house to keep me from falling down. You see, it, it would be fine if I were a ballet dancer. Clearly, I'm not. Uh, so I, uh, and these railings were fairly expensive. They were stainless steel, welded together, and so on. I said, no, this is really a waste. Uh, I can do far, far better railing than that, much less expensively. And, and I did, and I designed this railing, which uh, uh, has brackets that can be fitted instantly any uh, place along its length. Consequently, you can take a piece of aluminum extrusion, cut it to any size, any length you want, snap in the brackets any place you want, and screw them in the, in the appropriate place. If it's not the right place, you unsnap it and you resnap it. Can this, be, can this be done by an individual? Does it have to be professionally installed? Well, um, it's a good idea to have it professionally installed if you don't know how to install it. But it's like uh, putting up a picture frame, you know. It's, uh, you just have to really find a solid place in the wall. You want to find a stud. Now, a contractor has a stud locator, and if you can locate the stud, so much the better. But if you're just going to screw them into the gypsum board, then... Uh, then clearly the warranty doesn't kick in at that point. No, that we, don't, we don't warrant it because we do not do the installation. We just provide the material. Okay. It's, it's like somebody providing a towel bar. Our guest this evening on Today's Entrepreneur is architect and author uh, David Reach. Quick break and uh, more of, uh, of Mr. Reach's uh, thoughts and memories in a second. It's 7.45 on CJD. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.48 on CJAD. Welcome back to today's entrepreneur. Michael Newton with me as a, a co-host, filling in for Josh Miller. And also, uh, we'll bring into the conversation, along with architect and author David Reach, is Stephanie Darwish, who is uh, the Marketing and Communications Director for Fuller Landau. Yeah. It's nice to have, uh, have Stephanie here with us. Stephanie, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So basically, I think we're, uh, David, you know, you, you discussed about uh, the new product. Uh, first of all, give us the name of the new product. new product is called Promenade because it's an aid to promenading. And, of course, in, in French and English, it's good, Promenade. It's a, a, um, we have, I think, a nice selling point uh, where there's a wall, there's a way. Very That's nice. That's one thing. And we had another one, Give Your Legs a Hand. Somebody, so this, uh, it, you know, we're gonna, it's going to be so popular, it's just going to sell right off the shelves. Perfect. I mean, this is still in the infancy stage, and uh, clearly when you're trying to get a new product off the ground, yeah. uh, there's probably a list of about 100 ways to do it. Uh, some of them involve uh, some significant capital, some of them being a little bit on the, on the cheaper side. Um, one of the things maybe, uh, Stephanie, you can discuss is, is, I guess, the use of some of the social media in order to try and get a product out there and get some exposure as part of your marketing plan. Well, I think especially for a product like this, like you gave me a, a great demonstration earlier today that demonstrating how easy it is to work is the way to go for it. So for me to tell you, um, I, would, I would do a video, a YouTube video on it. And actually, funny enough, YouTube is probably the third most popular site among people over the age of 65. So it is a place where they're looking, and it is a place for you to very easily demonstrate your product to them. Well, we'd like to learn more about that, believe me. We have, of course, a uh, uh, site, you know, with an address and so on, which shows uh, the our product. So people can tune into that, but uh, certainly if we can improve it, we, we'd be glad to. Uh, because, it, as you saw, it's, it's a, a very simple thing. Exactly, and you can even you can embed your, your videos right onto your site. Mm -hmm. You can buy AdWords for your site. You mm -hmm. can, yeah. With such a great and easy product that people are, are actually able to physically see how it's used, yeah. your, your options for the online world are basically limitless, I think. That's right. It's, uh, we, we really 
could see this as being the Model T of railings because you cannot make a railing less expensive than this. Other people could probably copy it, but uh, and it's patented, by the way. Uh, but you cannot make it less expensive. It's an aluminum extrusion. Aluminum is a uh, Quebec product. Extruding is a very low labor uh, process. Um, so we looked into doing it in, in China, needless to say, but it just wouldn't pay. Uh, even if it's a, little, a few pennies cheaper, it has to be shipped here. The quality control becomes much more difficult and so on. So it's a Canadian product and uh, made of Canadian materials with Canadian labor. A lot of a lot of inventors uh, will will create their product and then try and sell it themselves. And I've heard a number of people contend that the the inventor should never really try and sell his product. He should try and you know work with somebody. Have you started discussions with anybody from a distribution perspective? Yes, well, uh, we we have yes we have, but there's two ways of well there's several ways of going about this. If we're talking about distribution, then you talk about the big distributors like the Rona, Canadian Tire, even IKEA, and so on. It's very difficult to get in with these people, and there's no reason why should, we should not be able to. But um, there, there's a lot of parameters, and I don't have the experience really in dealing with these things. Uh, they're going to, needless to say, they'll pay a rock-bottom price. For instance, if you go into Walmart, which would be a wonderful place to sell these things, um, uh, but then we have to be able to fix the price at a point where they get a sufficient discount to make it interesting for them and that we still come out of it with a profit. Have you have you determined the retail price for the product yet? And oh, how? we know exactly what it costs us to produce. Okay. If we're going to say we can produce it for X dollars, if we're going to sell it to uh, sell it through another company, we have to sell uh, X less uh, 50% or X less uh, 80%. And we don't know uh, because one of the parameters is going to be the volume that we're going to make because the more we make, the cheaper it becomes, and, and so on. And also, do we give exclusives or do we not? We're looking into all this now. Is, is this going to be manufactured here in Quebec? It's manufactured right now in Quebec, yes. Okay, and at this point, that's, that'll be the continued mode, I There's guess? There's no it? reason why not, because we can produce miles of this thing relatively inexpensively in Quebec. Okay, and there, I guess just maybe for, for those that uh, clearly cannot see the product, even though David brought it with him, he didn't get the memo that we're actually on radio and not on TV. Um, you're, you're, what, is the, what is the standard length of, uh, of, of the railings? Well, uh, you mean the, what we're producing? Yeah. The only limitation we have in the length of the railing is the shipping of it. We could make a rail uh, 50 feet long if we wanted to, we just can't send it anywhere. I think we're producing right now in, um, I think in 12-foot lengths, but these can be cut very easily on a chop saw. It's uh, with an aluminum cutting blade. Okay. So we can cut it very quickly to the fraction of an inch. Coming up, remaining moments uh, with our guest, uh, David Reach, and uh, we'll ask Mr. Reach what advice he would have uh, for entrepreneurs. Uh, CJD time is coming up to 7.53. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Remaining moments with our guest, David Reach, author, architect, also in studio, uh, Stephanie Darwish, Marketing Communications Director for Fulalandau, and uh, Michael Newton is here filling in for Josh Miller this week. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give David the opportunity to plug his uh, his book, the the one that was published, not the self-published one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the book is called You Could Lose an Eye, My First 80 Years in Montreal. Excellent. There Very really, nice. There'll be a sequel in my next 80 years in Montreal. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still going to be around to read it, but yeah. I look forward to it. I don't know it. if I'll be around to write it. <laughs> uh, any words of wisdom for an entrepreneur? Is there something that you, after uh, your 80 years of, 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 of seeing things, that you would say? I tell you, I've been, I've been very, very lucky. 
because first of all, I chose a profession that I enjoyed very much. And if I want to tell anybody anything, I say, love what you do. If you're doing what you don't like to do, then you're leading a miserable life. And you're just looking forward to getting retired, or you're looking forward to the weekend, or you're looking forward to some distant Love what you do when you're doing it. This is what gives you the kick. Excellent. Stephanie, if you've got a few words for us. I do have a few words for you. When it comes to online marketing, um, be honest, because the Google knows what you do, and they'll look out at you. Very good. Um, I'd like to thank David. Uh, obviously, uh, there's no possible way that we could have taken the uh, 20 pages of notes that you brought with you into uh, into an hour's worth of radio. But uh, needless to say, for those of you that have ever met David, he's a very colorful, very entertaining, and uh, fascinating individual. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for, for 20 years, and hopefully for another 20 years, as he continues to roll out products. And it never ceases to amaze me how uh, he seems to be as passionate and as interested today as he was the first time I I met him, and I have to say, David, that uh, clearly is an indication of uh, of the man and the passion for for what you, what you're doing. And uh, I think that kind of sums up the words I've co-hosted, I guess, a couple of times in in place of of Josh. And I always kind of finish, I guess, with the same story. But it's amazing to see how everybody throws the same thought out there, and that that really is do something that you're passionate about. Uh, it shouldn't be Monday, it shouldn't be a Thursday, it shouldn't be a Sunday. You should be going to do what you want to do because you want to do it. And uh, that's pretty much what I can uh, I can throw out there is make sure you're passionate about what you're doing. It makes the day a heck of a lot quicker. Dan? Michael Newton, thank you so much. Uh, Stephanie Darwish, thank you very much. And uh, David Reach, it's been a pleasure hearing your stories and we'll have to have you back on today's Entrepreneur at some point. Uh, best of luck with the, the, the promenade and, uh, and whatever new innovations you come up with next. Uh, CJD time is coming up to 8 o'clock. News is next. Then it is Delmar at night with guest host Joey Elias. Good night.